Okay, we're reading from Esther chapter 8, which is page 506 in your Bibles. I'll give you a moment. So I'm going to read to the end of chapter 8, and then we'll sing, and then I'll come back and complete 9 and 10. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favour and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have impaled him on the pole he set up. Now write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. At once, the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan. They wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and, and, their, and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued in law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers riding the royal horses went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honour. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews, with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews, 
because fear of the Jews had seized them. Okay, please stand as the music starts. Starting again, um, Book of Esther, chapter 9, on page 507. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Pashahandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Poratha, Adalia, Aradatha, Parmashta, Arishal, Aradal, and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, some son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The number of those killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? It will also be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also and let Haman's ten sons be impaled on poles. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they impaled the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa 300 men. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews, who were in the king's provinces, also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th, and then on the 15th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. That is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observe the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day for giving presents to each other. Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, that they should celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies 
and as the month when their sorrows, sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote to them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the poor, that is, the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back on his own head and that he and his sons should be impaled on the poles. Therefore, these days were called Purim, from the word poor. Because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family and in every province and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. So Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of Xerxes' kingdom, words of goodwill and assurance, to establish these days of Purim as their at their designated times, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them, and as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to their times of fasting and lamentation. Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim, and it was written in, down in the records. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores, and all his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, are they not written in the books of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. Thank you, Fiona, for reading uh, all of that. Uh, none of us envy you for those names. Uh, you did that very well. Uh, let, me, let me pray as we come to look at this. Uh, Lord God, thank you for this reading of your words, and we ask that you add your blessing to it as we consider it now, and on this day of Pentecost, as we remember the gift of your Spirit to the church, we ask you, please, by your Spirit, help us so to understand your word written that it might lead us to the Lord Jesus, to love and trust him more, and we ask it in his name, amen. Now, I don't know about you, but in our house, uh, we have people in our house who, who kind of think Tolkien's great work, The Lord of the Rings, is not bad, uh, but he didn't end it very well. 
he should have ended it with the defeat of Sauron and not spoiled it by three weddings at the end. That's the kind of, that's the kind of downward journey for it. That was a, a disappointment. He, he didn't get the ending right. And you could think, with this book of Esther, we've been going through over weeks. Look, end at Esther 7. The heroes seem to have prevailed. The villains exposed. At that point, credits roll, music starts. We can end there, but... But no, here we are, and we've got three more chapters, and they're tricky, aren't they? 75,000 people killed, and then a celebration. That's what we're given here. I mean, what do we do with that? How do we even begin to think uh, about these kind of things? What do you feel about it? Uh, look, two things to help us get back into this book. Maybe you've not thought about it since last week. Here's two things to, to help us get back into the book. Uh, some, some things for our thinking, some things for our feeling. Look, for our thinking, remember this book is giving us, if you like, it's giving us the big picture. It won't stop for moral comment on absolutely everything as we go through, there's a big picture here that it's showing us. Remember as well that in this book, that God is the hero. It's always the case, isn't it? God is the hero. It is not trying to paint every human action as above questioning. But even though he's not mentioned, now look, this book wants us to know how to trust God. That's what it's doing. And remember as well, keep this in mind, this is a book that will ultimately be wanting to point us in some way towards the Lord Jesus, just as the whole Bible does. We'll see in some of the characters that, but also in the shape of the story itself. Pre-echoes, if that's, I mean, I don't think scientifically that's a thing. I don't think you can have a pre-echo, but if you can imagine it anyway, there's a pre-echo, if you like, of Jesus. But there's some things for thinking. Look, Here's some things for our feelings. Here's a question one preacher asked. Um, can you think of a, of a frightening situation you've been in and recovered from? Uh, how did you feel? How, how frightened did you feel? How relieved did you feel? Uh, perhaps it might be a little thing. Uh, you know, like there was some ice and you slipped. You imagine that feeling? Uh, and then maybe you recovered from it. How, how did it feel when that happened? In fact, take a moment. If you can think of something, it might be just a little thing like that, but uh, turn with somebody just sitting beside you. Can you think of something that felt a little bit frightening? Uh, and maybe if you recovered from it, how, how relieved did it feel? Could it be an DIY thing, or it could have been a slip-up thing? Take a moment, just chat to somebody nearby about that. That feeling of a bit frightened, a bit relieved.
okay, you, you've had a, a chance to share. I can see some smiles. So maybe they're, as you look back, they're little things that are smiling. I, I can think of certain things like that where uh, they're, they're just little things slipping. I, I was punting with some uh, friends on the camp. I think it was last summer. They said they were going to help. They left me to do it the whole time. And you know that feeling? It got stuck, the pole. And I've been told so many times, don't hang on to the pole. Don't hang on to the pole when it, when it, when it sticks. I, I hung on to the pole a bit too long. I wobbled. And I thought, this is it. I mean, and I jumped, feeling that sense of fright, fright. And I just managed to get to the bank. People were watching. There was a little cord down here. I grabbed onto it, and I managed to keep my balance. The sense of relief. I've still not fallen in the cam yet. But that, there's little things like that. A little bit frightened, a little bit relieved. Or it could be something more serious. I thought of another time in my 20s, I was at the house of some friends, and one of them said, as you do, silly things in your 20s, we're in, in the kitchen. He said, look, I'll throw this melon in the air. You grab the kitchen knife and see if you can chop it in half as it comes back down. I said, that seems great, throw it up. As I swung the knife down, he grabbed hold of the melon again. I've no idea why, and I brought the knife down. And at the last minute, I pulled it up, and my sense of fright, you're already feeling frightened, aren't you? <laughs> As I saw some blood and pulled it away, and then the relief, I still feel it, the relief when I'd only nicked his finger. I still think from time to time, if I followed through, it wouldn't have just been the melon that was cut in half. Um, but you know that feeling, don't you? That the more, maybe not that feeling. <laughs> no, because you're always saying, no, because we're not idiots. <laughs> but maybe the sense of, yeah, in this way, work with me. The more frightening something looks like it's going to be, the, the more relief you feel if, if it's, if it doesn't happen and you're somehow rescued from it. This is a book that ends with deep relief because people were terrified. They were, if you like, at the gates of hell and they have been snatched back from it. So with this book, as you, as you go through these chapters, you only get the celebration. If in some way you can begin to even imagine yourself into the terror. And the reason it's written, in some ways the reason this whole book is written, is to persuade you that God promises relief to his terrified people. So you can trust him to if you want a summary of these chapters, it's not a very memorable one, but you, you could put it something like this. Look, God, God in judgment cancels death and renews society. Let, let's look at it. Here's the first thing. God cancels death in a great reversal. The story's the story is not over in chapter 7, and the reason is because Haman, the, the villain of the story, may be overthrown, but his evil plan is not. There is a legal death threat still hanging over God's people. So Esther goes to the king again. Did you notice chapter 8, verse 4, we're told, he extends the golden scepter. Now, if you've been with us, you will know what that means. 
If he doesn't extend the scepter to her, she will be killed. That's what it means. You could think everything's really friendly at this point now. But it's not just as straightforward as that. Esther, we've been told in a very brief way, is putting her life on the line again for her people. And at this point, we're reminded about the way the laws of the Medes and the Persians work. That's down in verse 8, if you want to see it. The king explains it this way. Once it's been written, it can't be revoked. This death penalty that's hanging over them, it can't just be turned off. It stays. And King Xerxes, this powerful man, yet again we're seeing a laughable kingdom in this way. He, he can't really do anything about it. He's not got much to offer. Verse 8 at the beginning is more literally, you write another decree. He's saying to them, oh, you fix it if you can. And Mordecai and Esther step in to reverse this death threat. And just notice, I think the writer wants us to feel the extent of this reversal that goes on all through the story. He keeps drawing attention to it. There's some, some headlines, if you like. Back in chapter 2, there's the signet ring that's the, the seal of, of the king's authority. It's reclaimed from Haman, but now it's given to Mordecai. It's a reversal. In verses 8 to 14, there's a new edict, a new law that's issued. And as we read it, you might have noticed, it's almost a mirror image of the one that had been written by Haman. It's written in the king's name. It's sent by the king's horses. The words are similar, verse 11. The Jews have the right to assemble and protect themselves. And then similar words, to destroy, kill, and annihilate. Uncomfortably, there is the mentioning of women and children in this context. Notice as well that it says they can plunder the property. We'll come back to that, but it's a reversal. In verse 15, there's a reversal of clothing. Mordecai has been in sackcloth. Now he's in royal garments. In verses 15 and 16, there's a reversal of joy. If you can remember back to chapter 3, Susa was bewildered by the kings, by Haman's first law. Now there's joy and feasting. In verse 17, if you notice it, there's tucked into this verse, there's a reversal about being Jewish. In the early chapters, there's a reluctance to let anyone know you're Jewish. Do you remember that? Mordecai is always saying to, to Esther, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. If people in your workplace, and he's reluctant, it seems as well, to even mention it amongst the people he's working with in Susa, if the people in your workplace find out you're a Christian and you believe what God says, you could find yourself in difficulty or being canceled. I could be talking about today but we're talking about Esther 2 and 3. And again, if you remember, Haman had said to Xerxes, the king, there's a people who live differently. They're not good for society, and they're not inclusive. They keep themselves separate. That's how the Jewish people, God's people, were being pictured and presented. Turns out over this book one of God's people has saved the king. That's pretty good, isn't it? And while they live differently, 
you can join. They'll include you. Verse 17 is saying, many people did. They came and joined God's people. God's community believes certain things, but it's not one that's saying, stay away. It's one that's saying, come in, join us. But do you feel the great reversal that's taking place across this chapter with these people? This is a great reversal. And I mean, it is quite staggering. It got me thinking about this. In the past week, one of our church family were telling me, one of the mums in our church family, she went to the kitchen cupboard this past week, opened the door, and their daughter, who she thought was still at university, jumped out and said, surprise. <laughs> imagine it, you know, big cupboard, went to the door, opened it, and then somebody, you didn't think anyone was going to be there except cans of beans, they just jumped out, surprise, surprise! She didn't die of a heart attack, um, but it was a bit of a surprise. And then the joy at seeing the daughter, who they thought was still away at university. Now, you know what happened, don't you? Once the kind of the heart rate had gone back down again, and you're still smiling, the question that's asked will be, how did you get there? How did you get to be in the cupboards? What, what, what's the train of events that led? How did you keep us in the dark for all this? What, what happened for you getting there? Uh, and younger sister was involved in it as well. Uh, you understand what's going on. And, and as they're described, as you begin to trace back all those things, they just add to the delight of it. And if you can have some of that in mind, realize what, what's going on here. When Mordecai and Esther, if you like, step out of the kitchen cupboard and they reverse this death threat, the question you're meant to be asking is, how did you get there? How is it that you got to be there just at this time for all of this to happen? It's God. Do you see him? That's what this book is showing us. Even though he's not mentioned, this, this book, in a way, it's, with all these events, it's almost like it is building for us a window frame. And it's saying, look through this. Look through all these events that seem a little bit random. Look through this and, and guess who you'll see on the other side. Look, lots of events that look random Lots of heartache along the way, but after the ache, celebrate. Because if the death threat has not quite been extinguished yet in the story, the fear of it has been neutralized. The sting of death has been removed. It's been reversed. God cancels death in a great reversal. Here's the next thing. Look, God renews. God renews society for the good of people. Uh, there's uncomfortable things here. You'll have felt that. I, don't, I feel it reading it, and I've read it several times this week. You might have felt it as well. Verse 12, we're told, 500 men are killed in Susa. I, I can't really imagine numbers like that, what that looks like, what it feels like to be around it. 500 men are killed in Susa and the 10 sons of Haman. Across the empire, in verse 16, 75,000 are killed. And many of us will look, and understandably, we'll look at that and think, I don't like that. I don't like the way that's presented. We, we live in a city, don't we, where 
where things like this just don't happen, when it comes, especially when these things come with the idea this is part of God's judgment, we can think we, we don't like that very much. We live in a city where things like that don't, don't happen. When we're not at work, we're in coffee shops, and life for many is reasonably comfortable. And not only do we think we don't like a God who judges, we, we can feel at times we don't need a God who judges. Don't like a God like that. But this book will say, being clear on sin and knowing there is a future judgment at God's hand, that is something that will strengthen and humanize society. Isn't that quite a thought? Do you realize that? It will promote equality, generosity, human dignity, hope, and care for the vulnerable. That's what this book will say. Let me say that again. Knowing God's judgment promotes good society. Isn't that marvelous? If you're struggling even to believe that, let, let me show you the way the book presents it. Look, remember the edict in, in 8 verse 11. And just work it through this way. It, it gave the Jews the right, the right to assemble and protect themselves. Did you notice that? The details in these, these chapters are really important. They, they have the right to assemble and protect themselves. They're not allowed to take a preemptive strike. And the good news of this provision, it was sent out in advance to everyone. Everyone gets to hear about this before. If you attack these people, they are now allowed to defend themselves. In chapter 9, those who were killed were those who attacked the Jews. And so do you understand what this is saying? If you still attack, knowing they can be defended, how much must you hate them? There is some sin where people are implacable and will not be talked out of it. Verse 6, that the 500 men killed in Susa. Remember, Susa is, the, is an administrative capital for the empire. It's like Whitehall in the UK, if you like. This is the Persian civil service. Can you imagine what it's like living in a kingdom where there are 500 people in government willing to kill you and your children. Imagine what it would be like to live in a society like that. And can you imagine the relief if they are removed? You remember as well, the edict said that you can take the plunder. Anyone who attacks you, and you defend yourself, and you're uh, they're destroyed, they're killed, you can take their plunder. I mean, it's kind of standard practice in warfare, isn't it? But three times in verse 10 and verse 15 and verse 16, we're told no one took any plunder. In the Old Testament, there were specific times when God sent His people in an act of judgment. And on those occasions, they're told no plunder. You don't take anything. This is something of that feel to it. God's not given a direct word like that, but they're allowed to protect themselves and they don't, they don't take any plunder. It's not just turning the table. It's a picture of God saying, look, eventually enough is enough. I will not let society continue on this path unchecked, especially when my people are threatened. 
And it's a good thing that there is a God who cares in this kind of way. There are tricky things in the passage. The edict allowing women and children to be killed is hard. Different translators do it in different ways, but I think as I've read it, I think it is very uncomfortable and tricky to to say. One thing I will say, there is no mention of that happening either. And then we have kind of sweet, beautiful Esther. And in verse 13, if you notice it as we went through it, she requests another day of killing. What do we make of that? But here's, here's two ways to think about it. The first one is this, and I think it could be this. Esther is tipped over into cruel revenge at this point. And again, remember with this book, this book might not be applauding that. The writer might be showing us, look, while justice is necessary, it is often and always flawed in human hands. You could read it that way. That might be what the writer is wanting us to see. He's just presenting it in that way. Look, look what happens here. Justice is necessary, but in human hands, at this stage, it's always flawed. And we can see that, can't we, throughout our world? Or it might be as well that Esther knows there's still a threat, and she's having to deal with it. Bear in mind, this is, this is limited to two days against only against those who are attacking. It's not a wild killing spree. It's almost unheard of in warfare, isn't it? Just a limit of one or two days. I lean at the moment slightly towards the the second of those options, but I I wouldn't press either of them. But but either way, grasp this. After a a genuine warning that attacking them would be seriously opposed and an awareness that if you wanted, God would welcome you to join him, those who continue in hostility against God and his people face the consequences. And we see God's hand of judgment in it. You hear that. But then also look what happens to society. Again, it's a picture of things, but look at verse 22 of chapter 9. If you can look down to there. Let me make sure I've got the right place. Yeah, there we go. Just have a look at verse 22 as we, as we read through that together. Do you see what's going on there? Sorrow turns to joy. Gifts are given. Foods shared. The poor are cared for. And if you read on to chapter 10, verse 1 to 3, you, you read this bit that King Xerxes, he's taxing his people again. You think, well, that's not very good. Uh, there's there's Xerxes doing his his other stuff. But as you read on, even in this last little bit, you now notice that at the top of government, there's a man of character. Verse 3, there's Mordecai, who is at work for the good of others. Do you see what's happening? It's not just a death threat has been removed. It's a, a society has been renewed. It's become a bit safer, more joyful, a bit more generous, but more caring towards those who are poor and vulnerable. And those who lead, lead for the good of others. See, here's why we need these chapters. They're showing us what God's big plan is about. They're they're painting a picture of it. It's like a, a shadow in the Old Testament of what God's always working towards. He can cancel death, and He can renew life. 
Okay, what are we to do with this? With, with all this stuff that goes on here? Does this mean, are you meant to read this and think what this is really about is Christians, Christians get weaponized against anyone who attacks us. This is saying that you can take arms if you need to. No, no, no. Think, think back to that person hiding in the cupboard that I told you about. Because I think you come to this end of the, the book, and if you, like, if, you, if you open it up again like a cupboard door, you're meant to see someone else standing there as you read this book. Here's the last thing. Look, Jesus cancels death and renews society. Esther gives us the shape of God's great rescue, reversal plan. There's, a, there's an ancient hostility in the world between people and God because, because of it, we all bear, if you like, an, an irreversible death sentence. But God's chosen. He's chosen to rescue people for himself. How's he going to do it? How's he going to cancel death? How's he going to renew the world? How will he judge evil and remove sin? How will he do all those things? Esther, if you like, gives us a preview. But the reality is found in Jesus. Jesus didn't just put his life on the line for people. He gave his life. When he walked to the cross, there was no golden scepter extended to him. The legal punishment for sin and evil, it all fell on him. He faced the real death threat. He's the greater Esther. He's the greater Mordecai, if you like. He's what they're pointing towards. He passed through death, but he came out the other side. He rose again in the great reversal. He's canceling death. A new life has been won, and not just for himself. He's able to give forgiveness and new life to all of his people. And that means for us, even now, while death has not yet been extinguished, its sting has been neutralized. So in a greater way, we can celebrate even while we wait for that final vindication. You know, that renewed, that renewed society, this is Pentecost Sunday. Part of the gift Jesus gives now is the Holy Spirit who reshapes our lives. Remember those early chapters of Acts, the, the new community of God's people, there's generosity, there's care for the poor, there's hope for the future. We still live in a world that's often hostile to God and can be hostile to God's people. Do we take up arms against them? No, not a bit of it. That's not what God's people do now. God's people in this world will continue to be, let me put it this way, we continue to be like this, targets and telegrams. That's kind of what we're like, targets. Those who reject God will often reject God's people. Some places in the world, it gets really hostile if you're a Christian. It is life in a hostile kingdom. We're targets in that way, but, but Esther's pointing towards God's promised day of justice. You don't need to take matters into your own hands. Leave room for God's judgment. In the meantime, we act like telegrams. We share the message from God that says, look, there is a coming day of judgment, but he's provided a way really graciously to cancel death and restore the world. And he's letting you know now so you can have it. You can come and join his people now. You can be in on this. Don't stay hostile any longer. Come into the inside. And since the first day of Pentecost, millions of people have done that. We don't attack our enemies. 
we pray they'll come to know God as Savior before it's too late. And we don't know in the end who will be an enemy or who will be a friend. There would have been people at the time when they looked at the Apostle Paul, wouldn't there? And they'd have looked at him before and thought, he's definitely an enemy of God, definitely on the outside. And they were wrong. He became a friend. And there would have been people at times when they looked at Judas and thought he was a friend, definitely in. And they would have been wrong. Esther says, Jesus has canceled death and will restore all things. Come and join his people. Trust him and invite others. That's how you live in a hostile kingdom. We're going to sing again, and the musicians are going to come back up. In a, in a moment, we'll be sharing uh, the Lord's Supper together. But this book of Esther, with hard things in it, it does speak of a God who is loving and kind and would extend His grace and mercy to anyone who would come. Uh, and this next song we're going to sing, by way of preparation, speaks of that. So as the music